You remain standing and take out that Red Pew Bible and turn to the book of Hebrews and to the ninth chapter. It's on page 800, or excuse me, 976 in your Pew Bible. Hebrews 9, verses 23 down through 28. If you're visiting, we are looking at the other great face, as George said, where we agree and where we disagree. The writer of Hebrews is writing to the Jewish community saying, don't go back to this sinking ship of the old rules of sacrifices in the temple because Christ has once for all paid it all. So we're going to read this together. If you're visiting verses 23 through 28, we get done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe it, you'll say, thanks be to God. So let's read this together out loud. And as you read, listen carefully, you're reading God's word. Thus it was necessary for the sketches of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves need better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made by human hands, a mere copy of the true one, but He entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer Himself again and again as the high priest enters the holy place year after year, with blood that is not His own. For then he of what had to suffer again and again since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the age to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as is it appointed for mortals to die once, and after that the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the bloom fades, but those words will last forever. We are looking at the five great faiths in the world and where we agree and where we disagree. We're doing this for a couple of reasons. One, to show not only the commonality and the good people that are in other religions, but to show the radicalness of Christianity in this thing called grace and how there's only one name by which we can be saved, Jesus Christ. And so the question is, as we go into this interacting, I want to remind you, we're not talking about people. Some of the most loving, caring people belong to other faiths. We're talking about their teachings. In fact, there are some Christians that only God could love. Do you know what I mean? And so what we take a look at is this... They walk through life like they're, with their faces, look like they're passing a kidney stone. Do you know what I mean? But what is it, the truth of the teaching? Well, last week we looked at Hinduism and this a billion people that look upon this faith and that this world is just cycles of birth and re-death and this world of samsara, how we get out of it, how they try. If you understand Hinduism, you'll understand Buddhism because Sudarta Gautama the Buddha, was raised a Hindu. And he's really kind of the reform movement. And the question of the Eastern religions, if we have seen, is one of desire. If you didn't have these desires, you wouldn't be unhappy. And so the question is, how can we get out of these desires? As uh, someone was uh, walking, I don't know if she's a member of Bel Air or not, but a rather well-off lady walking over here on Wilshire, and a lady come up to her who was kind of poor and a kind of a street person and, and asked about, could I have some money? 
And the woman said to her, uh, well, if I give you this money, how will I know or not that whether you're going to spend it on wine? She goes, I haven't had a drink in years. She said, well, if I give you this money, how do I know whether maybe you're going to go out and you're going to go shopping? She goes, shopping, look at me. I'm not going to go shopping. And then maybe if I gave you this money, you'd take it and waste it on a health spa. The woman said, are you kidding? I'm just trying to get some food. And she said, tell you what, I'm not going to give you any money. I want you to go with me out to eat with my husband tonight for a feast. The woman said, why would I go out with you and your husband out to eat tonight? The woman said, because I want to show my husband what somebody looks like who doesn't drink, doesn't shop, and doesn't go to hell spas. I just want to show her what you look like. (laughs) Only Bel Air would relate to that. But what about this question of desires in life? And how do we take care of them? The basic teaching, remember, from this young prince... Siddhartha, who was born, and his name means desire fulfilled, was that of Hinduism. He was born in the foothills of the Himalayas as a young prince. And his whole life, as he looked through life eyes, he believed in a thousand million gods like Hinduism. With all their manifestations, the divas and the avatars. But the thing that caught his heart was dukkha, suffering. Life is suffering. And how do you get out of this suffering? The wonder that we have, of course, is that this holy God has given us this thing called grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But when you look at Buddhism, and if you have Buddhist friends, we had a couple of Buddhist families at the uh, last service, and we almost every service have all the other faiths that are gathered here. Uh, And by the way, those of you who invite your friends to these looking at other face the idea is you're supposed to learn so you can share with them so you don't have a whole row of them and say go ahead pastor beat them up you know the idea is for you to learn but anyway that's just a little pastoral note um (laughs) next week particularly we're going to be taking a look at as our engaging the culture for christ and the question of what does hollywood believe does it have a belief system to it And other than looking at Scientology and non-practicing Jews, what is Hollywood really about? (laughs) And, oh, honestly, and believe it or not, that we will take a look and see what is the basic look at that. So you come next week and I'll be answering emails for 13 years. But (laughs) what did Buddhists believe? Well, they broke into two main streams. Uh, Siddhartha was born as in the 6th century, about the time that the Jews were in exile, with Nehemiah in about that time. And it broke into two streams. One of them, Mahayan Buddhists, the Eastern Buddhists, believe, like those from Tibet, like the Dalai Lama or in China, that they basically you're to help alleviate suffering, not just that life itself is suffering. The other big branch, the Theravada, who are kind of agnostic, whether there's really any essence in the universe. The whole point is through chanting and getting rid of your body that you should move ahead. Both of them embrace the middle way. And what is the middle way? You don't indulge the self and you don't mortify the self. You don't just give in to all your pleasures and you don't hate your body. It's the middle way. They believe in the four noble truths about suffering, about dukkha. The first is the nature of it. The life is suffering. Second of all is the origin of suffering. Samudaya. That means your desires. You wouldn't care how you looked if you didn't want people to like you. 
You wouldn't care about having money and why you're so poor if you didn't have this desire for things. If you wouldn't care about you if you realized what an illusion you are. And the more you get rid of these desires, the freer you become. The third noble truth is the cessation of suffering. Niharoda, which will later become nirvana. And a sense of really the loss of your existence into the oneness that is out there. And finally, the way leading to the cessation of suffering, marga. The eightfold way. You have Buddhist friends. A Christian will wear a cross. I can't resist. The three little boys gathered together and the one little boy, he was Jewish. He held up a Star of David. He said, this is the sign of our faith. And a little Catholic boy held up a crucifix. He said, this is the sign of our faith. And a little Presbyterian held up a cup of coffee and a donut and said, these are the signs of uh, our faith. But, but what you will see is they'll very often have a wheel with eight spokes. And the eight spokes are the eightfold way of enlightenment. Siddhartha, the, the Buddha, which means the Savior, said this, quote, Now this is the noble truth leading to the ending of suffering. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and concentration. And then you finally reach bhati, enlightenment, awakenment, to realize what this is. Well, a little more little summary of this teaching. Our drama department has another installation here on this faith. And the question of, as you go and work with Buddhist friends, wonderful people, what do they believe? Watch this. Buddhism began as an offshoot of Hinduism in southeast Nepal, somewhere between 500 to 400 B.C. It was conceived by Siddhartha Gautama, who was born a prince and married a princess. He became overwhelmed with the suffering and unhappiness in life. This led him to abandon his wife and infant son and to seek religious enlightenment as a wandering monk. After traveling throughout northeastern India for about six years, Gautama finally experienced enlightenment. The word Buddha itself means enlightened one. Along with Hindus, Buddhists believe in reincarnation or rebirth, where one lives many lives until one reaches a perfect state of enlightenment. At that time, the cycle ends and you reach nirvana, which is a place of perfect peace and blessedness. Buddha developed a plan to reach nirvana by practicing what he called the Noble Eightfold Path. This path consists of eight aspects of correct living, including proper behavior, proper meditation, and proper insight into truth. According to Buddhists, once you have successfully followed the Eightfold Path and eliminated the cravings of this life, Nirvana is finally reached. This particular religion is practiced by 350 million people in Sri Lanka, Southeast Asia, and Japan, as well as over 3 million believers here in the United States. There's much more influence by Buddhists than numbers. And a lot of us have Buddhist friends that we interact with all the time. If you go to uh, Hawaii to stay in a hotel, you'll normally have three books. You'll have a Gideon Bible, the Book of Mormon, and the teachings of Buddha. Because so many Buddhists that are in Hawaii from Asia. And if you ever pick that up in reading, a question, well, where do we agree with Buddhists? Well, we agree, first of all, that life is a journey of suffering. Now, why did he come about to this? Well, his father, Shudahana, and his mother, Queen Maya, 
She had this dream, and you might see in Buddhist art where an elephant is trying to enter a woman's side. And while she was pregnant, she believed this great truth was entering her child. In fact, she gave birth as she went to pluck a lotus blossom. Sometimes you'll see this in Buddhist art. And he was born as a young prince. He was trained in the military sciences. He was going to be a leader. But his parents wanted to protect him from pain. Along the way, he was struck with pain. First as a child, because they had him in like a compound. Everything was taken care of. He was playing with a little caterpillar. And this bird comes down and rips it in half in front of him and flies off. And he thinks, why would life allow that? Then his mother will die, who he loved. And this, they will say, his quote is like a scar on a tree. The more it grows, the deeper it gets. He will, Satara will go ahead, and his name does mean desires fulfilled, will marry. They will have a child. But he'll find in all this suffering, he goes on this journey one day. And as he goes along the way, he runs into, for the first time, an old man. He's never seen an old person stooped over. Then he meets someone who is dying, and then he meets a corpse, someone who's died along the way. And he comes back and he's profoundly moved that life is all suffering. And so he goes away and he lives with some of the ascetics, the other Hindus that are there. He travels through the forest with them for about three years. One day a maiden brought him something to drink, some milk, and the ascetics were so upset that they left him. And so Buddha went on his way and on his own he discovered what he said. He finally achieved Bodhi, which is enlightenment, the eightfold way. He will teach for the next 45 years this path of enlightenment. When he's 79 or 80, no one knows for sure. He had a meal on the way. He got food poisoning and he told his friends he was going to die. So he went to the forest and he sat and he in the lotus position was teaching the transitoriness of all of life as he died. And rather than bury him, of course they wouldn't, or cremate him in one place, one of our partner churches in northern India, in Bihar we go to, one of the towers, there are ten towers, where some of the ashes of supposedly the Buddha was placed. And his influence is great. And so we come and we say, well, we certainly agree with our Buddhist friends. If you read the teachings of Buddha from the 500 to 400 B.C. and the teachings of Christ, they are eerily the same. I personally think if Gautama had ever met Jesus, he would have been a follower of Christ because he was a truth seeker. Some, it's so similar, think that Thomas, you know, who was martyred, the disciple of Jesus in India, tradition tells it. We don't have any records to this. That maybe influenced some of the Buddhist teaching. But we would agree that life is tough. You don't see a lot of romantic comedies coming out of the Islamic world. <laughs> and you don't see a lot of romantic comedies coming out of the Buddhist world. Why? Because life is filled with suffering. Americans love musicals and romantic comedies because we think life has goodness to it. You know, there's even a dourness in a lot of European film because of the struggle of life as you look at it. Job said, as a f sparks fly from the fire, so man is born to suffering. The writer of Ecclesiastes, whether it's Shlomo, Solomon or not, he said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of joy. He said it's smarter for you that today to go find a funeral and stare at all these people whip, weeping than to go to a party. Why? Because it is all passing away. Paul said we look through this veil of tears. We weep so much that we can barely see through our tears. Peter said that we live in this fiery trial of life. Jesus said 
in the world, you will have tribulation. But then he adds, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So we agree with our Buddhist friends that life can be tough. Second of all, we agree that very often our desires create a lot of our misery. We're always shooting ourselves in the foot. Rather than trying to satisfy every desire we have, we would agree that some of these desires are corrupted. The guy that was in the forest in the Amazon, all of a sudden a bunch of warriors surrounded him and they brought the king out on his chair. And he said, oh my goodness, I am so messed over. And he went inward and listened to a voice. And the voice said, you're not messed over. Pick up a rock and hit the king in the head. So he picked up a ring, a rock and he knocked the king in the head and he fell over unconscious. And the shocked warriors looked at him angry with their weapons. And he went inside and the voice went, now you're messed over. <laughs> that is a Buddhist teaching. That the idea that if you follow the desires inside, you're going to end up getting in trouble. If we weren't all the time trying to find the finest, the greatest purpose of life in getting high, or the greatest sexual experience, or having so much fame that it validates who I am, or going after our so many people, we think we're serving God, and all we're doing is serving ourselves. Or we think that we're seeking justice, when no, we're not. We've got these petty grievances, and we're trying to bring vengeance on somebody on a very sophisticated way. So we would agree with our Buddhist friends that much of the pain in life is from these warped desires. Third, we would agree with our Buddhist friends that there is going to be a time of fulfillment when we quit getting over our desires. The Greeks had a story, a fable, of one after the first or second Olympics The two friends from a village ran and one out beat the other and at first he was excited. But then the town erected a statue in honor of the winner. And the friend, every time he walked by it every day, it just burned him, fired his jets because his friend had won. So late at night he would chip away at the base of it hoping that the statue would topple over. And one night when he was there, he looked at it, he said, how unjust that my friend gets all this attention when he barely won, I'm faster than him. And so he struck it and the statue fell over and killed him. Moral of the story, you burn down my house, you really just pull it on you. And very often in our life where we try to spend so much time and energy of trying to belittle others and talk about them and gossip and get back, all we're doing is we're pulling on ourselves. And so we would agree with our Buddhist friends, yes. And there will be a place of fulfillment. Someday it will be taken care of. I like what the statement of a theologian of really Augustine rephrasing it. Hunger doesn't guarantee we'll be fed, but it does prove we belong to a creature who eats, unquote. What does it mean by that? Just because you want something doesn't mean it's going to be fulfilled. But it does show you you were made for something is why you're hungry for it. And they believe that someday that when you read body and finally into nirvana, that you will finally cease existence. And you will no longer have pain and suffering because you'll no longer have desire. And here's where we disagree with our Buddhist friends. First of all, for us, Buddha is as smart and as insightful as he was of a man. It's pretty radical how he takes Hinduism as why I think he would have been a Christian, which really ticks off my Buddhist friends when I say that, is that is his looking at life. But we have an ultimate revelation. You got your Bible? Turn with me over to John, the fifth chapter. 
It's on page 866 in your pew Bible, verse 25. We've already seen that for us as Christians, the problem is not ignorance. The problem is sin. It's not that we don't understand life as Hindu and Buddhist believe, and you can be enlightened. Nah, you and I understand. We don't want to bend the knee. We are shaking our fist at the God of the heavens. It's why when you read in Hebrews, Christ has paid for it. Not time and time again, once for all. Once for all. If there is life in the other parts of the galaxy that are out there, Christ will not go and die for them. Once for all in the cosmos. If there are beings out there, you very much as missionaries would take that out there. But that gets dangerously close to Mormon, so we won't go there. The 25th verse, 5th chapter, 866. Let's read verses 25 through 29 together out loud. Jesus is addressing why he has authority. Let's read this. Very truly I tell you, the hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not be astonished at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in their graves will hear His voice and will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. The only Savior is the person and work of Christ, period. Others might have hints about the truth, but only one person. God has done for you and me what we couldn't do for ourselves. Second of all, there is no such thing as reincarnation. There is no repeat rides. One life. You got one bullet to shoot, and you're shooting it, so aim well. You're living your life in my eye. Now, everybody knows life must not end at the grave. I can remember holding my older brother as he breathed his last of dying of leukemia. I've been bedsides with many people as they died. And you just know there's something inside you that says this life's going on. Even though the body might still be warm, you recognize that the spirit is not there anymore. Reincarnation is this trying to piece together the puzzle on humans' own level. Well, you must come back time and time again. Of course, you know if you come back as a hillbilly, that's reincarnation. I don't know if you know that or not, but sorry. But but as you won't come back, Buddha had a statement... That the ashes of your life will make a mountain as high as the Himalayas. When you cremate somebody, what do you get? You get this many ashes? As the Hindus did off of the funeral pyres, or then the Buddhists later. He said, you're going to live so many lives that all those ashes are going to make like a mountain. And it's not you as a person that passes on like in Hinduism. It's kind of like he says, from a flame on a candle, when it is dying out, the flame gets passed to another candle. For a Buddhist, you don't remember a previous life because you as a person is kind of a sham. It's this essence of life that kind of goes on. The Bible says not so. You're going to live a life and you're going to die and so am I. And when you put this stumpy little body in the ground or roll me down the hill or whatever you do, (laughs) that I will not be there anymore. I will be in the presence of Christ. But someday I get a new stumpy little body. (laughs) It's a perfect body and it is like Christ. You will be given a perfect body as Christ, the scriptures say. He had a spiritual body. He ate with them. He laughed with them. He hugged them. He talked. He could travel at the speed of thought. 
Whatever the perfect age is. I think they didn't recognize Christ because he was crucified at 33. Whatever the perfect age is. Early 20s or whatever. Like I always say, I know it's not 54. But whatever the perfect age is, that we'll be given back to that. And everybody gets a body whether you like it or not. Some do everlasting life. Some do everlasting judgment. God likes this stuff. This physical cosmos. We may not like it. He thinks it's cool. He thinks it's broken because centered in the world, the world is not as it was, and He will make a new world, which we will see here in a moment. And you're either going to spend eternity with Christ and the joy, and who knows the adventures that are waiting. Or you will be a successful rebel, and when you say, I want nothing to do with you, God, He will say with a tear in His eye, so be it. And even in a perfect body, if you were given paradise, to look into the eyes of Christ and hear Him say, I'll never look at you again. That in itself would be hell. That's what we're longing for. This is not a game. This is reality. And you and I are living this life. And God has loved us so much that He made a place in His heart that nobody in the whole cosmos can fill but you. You're uniquely made for Him. And so this personality you have, though infected and broken by sin, He says, I'm not going to leave you alone. So we disagree that you can save yourself And some of these Buddhists are great men and women. They are so sincere in trying to chant and leave this world and and mortifying of the body. Some of them are great doers of good. But they don't know that Christ Himself is here to rescue us in this one life that we live. And not only that do we disagree with that, but we certainly disagree in the understanding that we can chin ourselves up by getting rid of desires. I like what someone commenting on, on a statement of one of the theologians. There's a line, the lesser gods leave the forest when the greater God comes. And what they were talking about is the lesser things that we value. And speaking of the Greek words for love, like storge, eros, and phileia, that when the greater God, agape, comes, they leave. But I like Lewis commenting on that, said that's not so. You really can't enjoy the lesser gods until the greater God comes. They're free to stay, not leave, but in the right way. Storge is like family love, where you're loved by a family and someone special to you. And the moment you have your family as Savior, you've ruined them. The way to save your family is to have Christ as Savior, the center of it. Then you're free to actually be a family and be halfway healthy. The moment Eros, God created sex. And understanding sexuality, we're going to be talking about that in a series we're coming up on, on pure sex. And God, He created it, it's beautiful, but you can never appreciate it until God is the center of your life. Not that. Or the pleasures of the world, hearing beautiful music or seeing symphonies or experiencing. Senses are great stuff, but it's not salvific. And when God becomes Savior, then you can finally put it in perspective. Or even phileo, brotherly committed love. People doing good things and helping out and and the United Nations or UNICEF or missions, even ourselves, going or helping the poor downtown and these people on the street getting the kids off of it. It's wonderful stuff, but you can't really appreciate it until God is the one that you're the most committed to. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And you shall love your neighbor and you shall love yourself. This is the meaning of life. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That sums up the entire Tanakh and Torah in one sentence, Jesus said. 
And so as we realize this great truth that God gives, it's liberating to understand that. Nirvana is not the goal. The presence of God is the goal. Last uh, scripture we'll look at. Turn with me over to Revelation, the 21st chapter. On page 1007 in your pew Bible. Remember, John is exiled to the penal colony of Patmos by the Romans. And Jesus Christ appears to him physically and gives him this revelation. And it's this bizarre book with these this snapshots and kind of this political cartoon of, of reality coming. But before we read that, listen to this statement from Siddhartha, from the Buddha. This is from the teaching Sutra, 81st chapter, verse 4. Gautama is speaking to a disciple about what's the purpose. There is a safe place in view of all, but difficult to approach. There is no age or death, pain or disease. It is called nirvana. Freedom from pain and suffering. Safe, happy, quiet place that the great sages have attained. It is the eternal place. Those sages who reach it are free from sorrow. Listen to this. For they have put an end to the stream of existence itself. Unquote. Buddha said at some point if you go through this you can finally lose yourself and the great sages just kind of existence no more. God says close no cigar. Chapter 21 verse 1. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the throne of God is among mortals, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them, and He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more, mourning or crying. Pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. God is not going to have the end of the world. Someday there will be a new earth and a new heaven. And in the resurrection of that day and the glory of the things that are waiting. The, you know, right now you just want to have a happy family. You just want to have somebody who can love, you can share with. Good desires in themselves. Christ says when we get there, the best marriage will look like Email spam in comparison to the intimacies that is waiting there. You want to do something and make something of your life and be recognized? That's a good desire. But wait till you see when God looks at you and you finally understand who you were made to be. And He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You want to be able to create a little wealth so you can do things a little money? Not a bad desire. But compared to the riches that are waiting... And you and I now go into this world. Who was it that first came up with hospitals giving care of sick to the dying that were not your own family? It was the early Christians. Who were the ones that would sit? And there was a patria law within Rome that the father had all rights to the family, even life and death. Oh, for the good old days. But in those times, what they could do is he could decide, and if you didn't want to have a child, though they wouldn't abort They would take that child and leave it on the side of the hill to the gods to decide what to do. Who was it that waited underneath the aqueducts and the byways and came and said, we will take your baby and raise it? The Christians. 
Who came up with public education? Education was known, but it was only for the wealthy and to have mentors. In the Middle Ages, it was the Christians. Who was the one that does... But we know this world is not our home. I'm just a passing through. And because of that, you and I are called to go into the guts of this city, not avoid it, to the darkest, most broken place and give because Christ is going to take care of us. Even our enemies. After World War II, the animosity between the German and the English people was so great that some of the German Christians, and particularly a youth group, decided to go to London to help. And after the bombing of London, so much it was devastated, they as Christians knew many of the cathedrals and churches had been bombed out by Hitler. And these young Germans went to a particular church to help clean. They did it quietly because there was not exactly warm feelings at that moment. And as they went in, they found a statue of Christ that had on the base of it, Come unto me. And it was this beautiful marble statue of Christ that had been reaching out. And during one of the blitzes, during the bombing, it had been broken. So they went through the rubble and they found as much as they could and that they, with an epoxy, kind of put it together. But they only found one of his hands. The others had been smattered into a thousand pieces. And they chose not to put that hand on. And they erected this beautiful statue of Christ. You can go there to London today and see it. But it has no hands. And on the bottom of the base... They took off, come unto me. And they chiseled in there, really smart. He has no hands now but ours. That's the good news. The same Jesus who walked the dusty trails of Palestine and healed and touched and all the power, who ascended into next to the Father, who's coming back someday physically. He now, by the Spirit, uses your hands and your eyes and your feet and your mouth and your mind. And all you need to do is to let Him have a shot at this. To say, Lord, what can you do through me? And He says, come on, let me show you. Hey, we need to learn from some of our Eastern friends. I mean, how much pain and heartache do we go through over things that aren't going to last? My goodness. I've told you before that when I was in grade school, you know, I loved sports. But one sport that I was for some reason good at was tetherball. Remember that? (laughs) And I was so nervous about going to junior high because, you know, they got the big guys there, you know. And they got zits and hair already. And I don't know, you know. And so I practiced tetherball all summer long so I could be great, so I could impress everybody. And I went to junior high. And they don't have tetherball. They don't even have recess. How can there be a God of love? I wasted my summer on a sport they don't play. What are you wasting your life on? This life is moving. The clock, the meter's spinning. You and I have one shot, and it's a great shot. Aim wisely. Are you trying to chase after the things of this world or the approval of the church or your family or others? Stop it. Are you trying to just say, I'm going to live for me and build my own little empire? Are you kidding me? Or you can say, Lord, take me to love your people and to love this city. We are free moral agents confronted by a living Christ who say, what are you going to do with your life? Do you have any Buddhist friends or co-workers? Find some. Great people. 
And they're trying so hard to get out of this dukkha, this suffering a time and time again, and tell them, you know a Savior that can help. And tell them His name is Jesus. And if He could bring into your life, you don't just turn off bad desires, you open up the valve of the living water Himself, the Spirit of God. And if He can hose you out and flesh out His love and grace, He can do it in their life. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. And I have come to give them life, and life it's all of its abundance. Take a bite, the juice running down your cheek, the artesian well bubbling up into the lives of others. They need to hear about it. Let's pray, shall we? God, I thank you that you are the creator and that, Lord, you made such a stunning cosmos. And, Lord, who knows what is waiting, God, in the glory. But, God, you had a pain in your heart that you made your children in your very image, and yet we ran away and we shake our fist at your face, Father. We go to everybody but you, and, Lord, you never let us go. Lord, you love us so much, just like a parent who always shows their picture out of their wallet about their child. Lord, you can't start bragging about us to the angels and the things that someday you will do through us. I pray, God, as we go into this broken world and as we follow the risen Christ, he has made a breach in the walls of this dark castle called Satan's realm. The Lord, we would take the light and the hope and the deliverance and the freedom of Jesus Christ himself. And so, Lord, as we come now before you with our offering, and what a privilege to give to you, God. I pray, Lord, that you would take these gifts and multiply them as we give them downtown and around the world. Lord, bless the giver, Lord, whoever her or his name is, that you will take care of them. And may Jesus Christ get all the attention. He is our Savior. For his sake we pray. Amen.